Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is Friday, November 8th, 2013, and obviously this is not a regular edition of the Corbett Report podcast. This is another Questions for Corbett installment, and I just want to explain what's happening here. Basically, this weekend there will be no regular edition of the podcast, as I am busy preparing for my next big outing. Uh, for those who don't know, I have been invited to speak at the FOSSA 2013 conference in Lille, France, later this month. And this is an open source software conference that's been held for, for several years now, but they are looking to expand open source and the meaning of open source beyond just bits and bytes. So this year they're going to concentrate on, for example, open source journalism. So yours truly has been invited to give a presentation on that at the FOSSA 2013 conference. Uh, Tom Secker of Investigating the Terror and Spy Culture will also be there. He'll be speaking about open source intelligence. So I'm very lo looking very much forward to meeting Tom Secker in person for the first time and hopefully recording a couple of interviews with him while I'm there. So I will be in France later this month and I'm busily now trying to prepare and make sure I've got all the uh, I's dotted and T's crossed on my presentation for that conference. So rather than doing a half-cocked podcast, I wanted to concentrate on that presentation. So instead, you're getting a Questions for Corbett uh, episode to tide you over this weekend. I am planning to release a podcast episode next week because, as I'm sure you all know, it's coming up to the 50th anniversary of JFK, but I am actually going to be in France at the time of the 50th anniversary, so I'm going to try to put out a uh, 50th anniversary JFK-type podcast next week and uh, some other JFK-related interviews and videos and things um, in hopefully in the next week. So I have my work cut out for me. I cannot believe it's nine days until I leave for France, so I really have a lot of work to do. And I hope you'll, uh, you'll hang in there with me as I try to get it all done and understand if I don't get it all done. Um, I'm also planning to have a video in the can ready to go, ready to launch on Friday, November 22nd, on the actual day of the 50th anniversary of JFK, that I hope will be another big video video, and I'll, I will ask your support in helping to spread that once it's out, and uh, well, again, we'll see how that, how that works. Um, for those who actually are in France or could make it to France later this month, uh, the conference will be held around the November uh, 20th, 21st, 22nd, uh, or is it 19th, 20th, 21st? At any rate, the details are on the FOSSA 2013 website, which I'll link up in the show notes. And uh, anyone in Lille, France, or who can make it there, I believe registration is open right now. So you can go and register to, uh, to come and see that conference and to, to hear me speak. Um, obviously, I'll be taping my presentation and uh, we'll be putting that up as a podcast uh, once I get back uh, in late November. So that's uh, kind of what's going on behind the scenes right now. I have a jillion and a half things to do right now. So again, I hope you'll bear with me as I try to get it all done in uh, the, the few remaining days that I have left. Uh, a couple of other notes. Uh, obviously, this is questions for Corbett where I answer as many questions as I can. And as always, I, I have to stipulate that I can't answer every question that I get because I get literally dozens and dozens and dozens. But I do try to answer as many as I can. We have quite a list today, so let's see if we can get through it all. Uh, obviously, you can get your comment uh, questions in via the contact form on CorbettReport.com and uh, also you can leave a, a question in video form on YouTube. Just use the hashtag QFC so I can find it in the YouTube search engine and I will do my best to answer all the video questions that come in. Uh, Twitter questions, obviously also you can use the uh, hashtag QFC um, hashtag to try to uh, flag that so I can find it. 
and uh, audio, uh, SoundCloud, AudioBoo. Um, if you want to record yourself asking a question to send that in, I'd be happy to play the uh, audio of that. Or uh, if you want to ask me a question directly live on the air, people who don't know, I am on uh, Radio Liberty with Dr. Stan Monteith every single Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific. That's 7 p.m. Eastern time for those of you in the United States. And uh, there's details of the how to listen and how to phone in on the website, radioliberty.com, which will be linked in the show notes. I'm also on with Joyce Riley of the Power Hour every other Monday at 8 a.m. Central. That's 9 a.m. Eastern time. So again, I will put in a link to thepowerhour.com so you can go find out about the listening details and how to phone in. So you can phone in live with your question on air if you'd like. Um, So many, many different ways to get in touch with me. But as I stated last time, I want to start Questions for Corbett each week, each time we do it, with a a positive example of a um, solutions-based comment that someone's come in with and preferably something that they've garnered from the podcast because again I want to show people that what this is ultimately about is helping people to implement solutions and hopefully spreading ideas and and uh, forming that kind of uh, back and forth where people I, I put out ideas and other people take them and run with them and other people get inspired by that that's the ripple effect that we're trying to cause here on the podcast so I want to highlight at least one of those each and every time so today we're going to start with an incredible email I got recently from Matthew this is the best type of feedback I I can possibly get, so I wanted to share it with you. Uh, Matthew writes, uh, James, there are a few things that have pushed me over the edge to start my own media channel. You are at the top of the list. I've been a fan for a while and always appreciated your thoughtful, reasoned analysis and research. I've been inspired to fill a need I see in the alternative media field, but simply allowed myself to stay on the bench and be a spectator. I'm finally breaking free from the noose of public opinion. I've held back so long, even though I feel called to have my own inspiring media channel that offers my own perspective on issues and some insight into the solutions we as human beings can offer by becoming more holy ourselves. I'm practicing what I preach now, though. In the past, I've been enslaved by my fear of what others will think of me. This is ironically something I've actually taught on before, and in other areas besides political truth, I've had no issue with being vocal and out front. I've enjoyed public speaking gigs in the past and was a full-time human trafficking activist advocate who put on big events. But I noticed both in my faith community and in general that it was easy to get people to rally behind a cause that is sort of apolitical, even though in reality nothing affecting society really can be. I was held captive by other people's comfort. However, today, after listening to your video about creating your own media, something has clicked and a shift has been made. I was already headed this direction with my passion. I had my channel name, had my website, had my gear, but the one thing I didn't have was the guts or tenacity to put myself out there like I feel like I am supposed to without cowering to the opinion of others. I realize today that there is a cure to that problem. The cure is to simply stop making excuses and do it. I think I've realized that in the act of doing it, in stepping out, I will simultaneously be activating the cure as I overcome my fear. I know this doesn't mean my content will be successful right away or possibly ever, who knows, but it does mean that I will at least be willing to find out and won't have to live under the weight of regret for not giving it a true shot. James, I so appreciate you. I'm getting off these effing bleachers. Thanks for calling us to the field. It's all that some of us needed to hear. I'm taking note of this fact for my own content. Excellent. Well, as I say, this is the best possible feedback I can ever get. So my hat's off to you, Matthew, for doing that. And to all the other people I've heard from over the years who have been inspired to start a blog or a YouTube channel or a Facebook page or whatever it is to try to get the word out to more people. 
I really do hope that uh, that people do take this to heart and do start spreading the word more actively. So people who are interested in following following Matthew, his website is ditchyourbox.com, a very uh, a promising title. But right now it is a work in process progress. Uh, I'm told that the uh, the website isn't ready to launch yet. But if you go to ditchyourbox.com, you can sign up for updates and to get information when the website launches. So I'm looking forward to see what Matthew has up his sleeve, and hopefully we'll be able to follow that and follow his work. And uh, once again, I'm just so happy that uh, that some people really are taking this to heart. And my hat's off to everyone who gets in the ring, whether I agree with the, them or on various issues or not. I'm just happy when people uh, get out, out of the mindset that we're all just passive recipients and start spreading this message. So an excellent message to start things on today. And on another positive solutions-based uh, happy note, um, I would also like to point people to Twitter user at GJ Salisbury, who uh, wrote me a tweet, uh, look what's arrived as a result of your interview. And accompanying that tweet was the picture of Another 19 by Kevin Ryan. Obviously, people who followed my 9-11 anniversary coverage this year know that I was uh, highlighting the work of Kevin Ryan and wholeheartedly endorsing it, hoping people would buy that book. And at least one person did as a result of that interview. I think that's a benefit as well, because, again, it is a very valuable book, and I'm glad that more people are hearing about it through the podcast. So that's uh, that's what that's all about. So, again, we're spreading ideas and hoping that, uh, that, that these ideas will catch on and inspire people in various ways. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. Uh, let's get into some of the questions, and again, we'll dip into the Twitter feed uh, for one from at Devil, who tweeted uh, a hashtag QFC question. What's the chances there will be a false flag attack coinciding with the upcoming financial meltdown leading us to war? Uh, excellent question, and I think the simple answer is uh, very likely um, if that's what's in the cards. Uh, if there is going to be that kind of catastrophic financial collapse, I would actually be shocked, staggered, I'd, I'd be absolutely uh, uh, just overwhelmed if it didn't come with some sort of false flag, uh, war pretense type uh, type event wrapped in, in it so that they can immediately blame the financial collapse on whatever false flag event happens and then roll that into the next war, which um, will be the um, the health of the state as it always is. So, uh, so absolutely, I think if that is the scenario that we're looking at, the overnight financial collapse scenario, I think it almost certainly will be accompanied with some type of uh, false flag event, some type of war provocation scenario. But that's not to say that's the only way this can play out. As I've tried to stress before, the the overnight financial collapse is not the only way this can happen, and it's not the way that it is happening at the moment. It's not to say that it couldn't happen, but uh, but at the moment, things are, are on the longer deflationary um, death spiral um, uh, uh, type of approach, where ultimately the economy is kind of winding down and things are transitioning into a different system, which will be uh, ultimately transitioned into the global currency one way or another, whether that be SDRs or what have you. I've talked about that in some of my financial work before, so I hope people will take a look at that. But uh, basically the, the overnight financial collapse and the big false flag isn't the only way this can play out. As my son starts to uh, <laughs> let his dulcet tones be heard in the background. All right, let's move on to uh, Roseanne, who has a very important question. She writes, If population control is the ultimate objective of the 0.01%, and they have all the money and power in control, why have they so spectacularly failed to achieve it? 
Uh, this is an important question, Roseanne, because I, I've received this question in a lot of different ways from a lot of different people, and I understand this question because if you look back at the time, for example, when the Population Council was coming into existence in the 1950s, uh, spearheaded, of course, by the Rockefeller family and J.D. Uh, III, um, of course, absolutely, the, the population of the Earth was much smaller back then than it is now. We've had this massive population growth in the intervening 50, 60, 70 years. So what What's happening? Their plans are failing spectacularly. They're trying to cull the population and the population is mushrooming. Well, not exactly. It's not as simple as that. And I think we have to look not only at the roots of the, the population uh, control advocates and, and the, uh, the types of studies that, that fostered this, which showed that, uh, that it would be a type of mushroom type growth where growth expands rapidly and is ultimately curtailed. And I think that's what we're looking at. We have to look at the longer-term picture, which shows not a infinitely growing population, but a population that will grow to 9 to 10 billion people and then start to decline, and in fact start to decline rather rapidly in a way that most people have a hard time conceptualizing because we see this growing exponentially growing population, we have a hard time understanding that the, because of the declining birth rates, when this uh, the population starts to plummet, it will start to plummet precipitously. This is called the demographic winter, and it is something that is hidden in the statistics, but is there if you start to look at uh, the de rapidly declining birth rate in country after country after country. And uh, again, I think this is part of a concerted agenda. I think we can see what's happening right now. I will revert people once again to an excellent documentary that came out on the CBC of all places several years ago called The Disappearing Male that I referenced in a uh, podcast episode called You Are Being Sterilized, which I will uh, direct people to once again. I've also talked about the demographic winter in uh, the overpopulation myth and some of my other work on, on the real uh, population crisis, which is not overpopulation, but underpopulation. We really are heading towards basically breeding ourselves into extinction as a species. And again, I think there's a lot of different factors towards this, and uh, we have to look at the big players who have spent, invested billions of dollars overall of their money into this, including, of course, groups like the Rockefellers and their Population Council, which grew out of the American Eugenics Society. And I've documented that before in the podcast as well, so you can go back um, on that subject. Subject, and we will return to it because ultimately this is part of the big endgame type uh, questions that are exceptionally important. So a very good question, and there's a lot to be said there. I, I, w I hope people will look at the show notes to some of the things that I just referenced there for more information on that. Uh, let's move on to Paul, who writes, I, too, am convinced that a move toward localization, which promises a similar success as other distributed models, such as alternative energy and computer processing, is an important part of any solution to our challenges. Would love to know some of the ways in which you are personally participating in the localization movement. Uh, excellent question, Paul. Um, yeah, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. And the question is, well, okay, it's great to hear about these ideas in a vague form, but what can you actually do about it in a concrete form? And I, again, I always say I'm not on a high horse here. I'm not preaching from some altar of pure perfection. I'm far from it. I'm still struggling to detach myself from the systems of control. And uh, obviously just the fact by virtue of being here on the internet using GooTube of all things to, to speak to people, I'm still intimately connected with that 
system. And, uh, and that's, some, that's that duality that we've talked about here on the program before. At what point does it stop becoming beneficial to reach into the matrix to pull people out? At what point do you actually start becoming part of the matrix? I think when you're putting on Google glasses and using your iPhone 5 to thumb scan every time you want to go uh, look something up on the internet, I think that's the point at which we're becoming part of the problem rather than contributing to the solution. So in terms of uh, localization and what uh, what some of the things that I do, uh, one example is this. It's called Green Co-op, and it is something that they have here in Japan that uses... Uh, not just organic produce and uh, and uh, chemical-free types of uh, products and uh, unpasteurized milk and the like, but uh, but actually has higher standards than just organic because, as people might know, the organic label has been taken over by the big uh, big food, big agri, and is not a uh, really trustworthy title. So, in fact, this is a, corp- uh, a company that goes even beyond that in terms of uh, how strict they are about pesticides and the like. So this is... Uh, uh, the best uh, food that you're going to get in Japan, um, organic, locally produced uh, farming uh, goods and the like. Um, in fact, not just farm, not just foods, but all, all, all sorts of uh, products. And um, and so we, my my wife and uh, myself use this. Uh, they also do radiation testing on all their products, and they publish this pamphlet. You can't possibly read this, even if you're looking at the video, even if you can read Japanese, because it's such small print. But they list all their products, the radiation testing they did, the results of that testing, what the government standards are for allowable radiation, and the fact that they uh, not only don't have that that limit, they, they don't even have detectable levels of radiation in these products. So this is uh, what we do to source um, most of our food. Obviously, not every Everything that we buy comes from here, but a lot of our food does. It is slightly more expensive, but it is better for peace of mind to know that our food supply is not poisoned with the the GMOs and all the chemicals and uh, the radiation and all the other crap that could be in there. Um, For people in Japan who are interested, this isn't an advertisement, but you can go look it up if you want. It's greencoop.or.jp. I'll put the link in the show notes if you are interested in taking a look at that. Um, so that's one example of localization. Um, a lot of this produce and stuff f- uh, is locally sourced, local farmers, and uh, and much healthier than the crap that we would buy at the big supermarkets. And um, But in, in terms of things like electricity, I am very much still on the grid here. So that's something that I definitely have to change. And hopefully at some point, one day, maybe, we'll be able to move out of this tiny two-bedroom apartment and into a house where we can start implementing some more uh, ways of getting off the grid electrically um, from solar power and and other things, uh, generators and the like. So hopefully, I mean, again, it's a process and it's a long one and it takes a long time and I'm not absolutely not preaching from a pedestal on high. And uh, hopefully if people out there have, uh, have their own ideas and solutions, please write in and maybe we can feature you in the next questions for Corbett um, as an example of a solutions-based comment about someone who has gotten further off the grid and how they did that so that hopefully other people can be inspired by your story. All right, let's move on to the next question. We have a question in from Douglas who writes uh, regarding uh, Japan's sexless youth. Uh, would like to hear what you have to say about this and whether Japan has more despair than other developed countries. And he uh, puts in a link to uh, to Miss Shedlock's blog where he writes about this Japan sexless youth phenomenon that has been all over the media lately in The Guardian and, and all sorts of uh, Salon or Slate or one of those types of publications. Uh, it's been all over the internet in the last few weeks. 
people writing about uh, this phenomenon, Japan's sexless youth. Uh, youth in Japan aren't having sex anymore. What does this mean about Japan? And where's Japanese society heading? And is Japan breeding itself to extinction? Et cetera, et cetera. This is a meme that took off recently, and uh, it's extremely interesting to watch how this happens um, because... Uh, there's a couple of places I'll direct people. One is a, a post on Media Watch called uh, What Was the Sexless Japan Thing All About? Uh, sorry, it's on a blog called Tokyo Deaths. It's uh, under Media Watch, What Was the Sexless Japan Thing All About? And it dissects how this idea first started in a Guardian article called Why Have Young Japanese People Stopped Having Sex? And then how it expanded. The Washington Post picked it up. Uh, BBC documentary. Uh, it spread to, spread to Slate and places like that. So uh, it, it shows how this basic this idea, which came from one article, was suddenly picked up all over the internet. And I think that this is instructive to see how these ideas, I mean, literally, these are things that are supposedly social phenomenon that have been occurring and unfolding over the course of decades or generations. And suddenly someone writes one article and now everyone's talking about it as if it's now a thing, um, which is obviously too simplistic a view. And the question is, well, why does it catch on suddenly like that? And I think the answer is because it plays into various stereotypes and preconceptions that people have. Oh, Japan is that that weird society where weird phenomenon occurs and social, uh, social phenomenon like this. And here's the latest from Weird Japan. In fact, last year, I think it was uh, a, a story about Japanese youth licking eyeballs was apparently the new Japanese youth, uh, you know, dating thing. They, they lick each other's eyeballs, and that spread all over the internet. People were writing about it. Videos were going viral online talking about this phenomenon. In the end, it turned out complete hoax. Not true at all. Doesn't happen. I, I can attest I've never seen anyone licking eyeballs in Japan. But it's just one of those things. Oh, look, weird Japan. And, uh, and it just catches on and spreads like that. And of course, it's not just about Japan. This type of story happens in all sorts of contexts. So I think it's extremely instructive to, to look at how that happens, why it happens. And the next time we see a story about some social phenomenon or whatever that's, that's suddenly all over the media, maybe we should ask, where is this coming from and what data is being used to support it? And on that note, I'll also throw in a link to Yuta Aoki's blog, which uh, does an absolutely incredible job of actually examining the statistics behind all of the things that were being asserted in these various stories about Japan's sexless youth um, and completely decimates every single one, that there's a link between um, sexlessness and low fertility, uh, dissects that and shows that it's not true, IQ and fertility rates, all of the things that have been talked about in the various stories completely obliterates them and shows you the graphs and the the data for each one of those points. So uh, so again, just let this be another example, if any were needed, that we have to be very wary about all these uh, these stories we hear and where they're coming from. Uh, moving on, let's uh, let's turn back to Twitter. We had a question from at Stitch7 who writes, uh, remember the Grant Bristow affair? Seems to fit in with the Operation Gladio pattern. Are you aware of any connection? Um, excellent. Thank you for the question. And I'm going to confess almost total ignorance about Grant Bristow and that, that whole scandal. I know it was CSIS Mole inside the Heritage Front, and it was a scandal that happened kind of before my political time. So I, I have not done any research into this. I think it would be ripe for some research for a future episode. And as a Canadian, I probably should be more on top of this than I am. Um, in terms of an Operation Gladio connection, again, I have absolutely no idea, no data indicating either way. So I couldn't really speculate about that. And uh, maybe I can, again, get into this in a future episode of the podcast or, or something like that. But uh, um, uh, 
also I would, I understand Operation Gladio, Gladio B. I was recently on Breaking the Set talking about it. It's getting more people talking about Gladio B, which is a great thing. But I hope that it doesn't become just sort of a one-size-fits-all label that people apply to anything that looks like some sort of government setup or something. I mean, Gladio B is a specific program that's being run through a specific NATO department and a specific Pentagon department. And uh, there are specific people who are specifically involved in that in specific areas of the globe. So just to say that anything that's kind of a government setup is Gladio is, I mean, in terms of being that type of, maybe that type of uh, idea, that program is an idea, maybe. Uh, it's kind of a, yes, this explains what's happening there. But in terms of the specifics of uh, Gladio, I don't want it to become just a label. It is an actual specific program with specific people working in it. Um, uh, speaking of Gladio B, got a few questions in recently about that, obviously, because I was on Breaking the Set talking about it. And specifically about that, we have a question in from Paul, who writes, regarding Gladio B and Breaking the Set... Like all your stuff, it's so great, but isn't Russia today funded by the Kremlin? Isn't that extremely important in this situation? I mean, what am I missing here? Uh, I don't know what you're missing, Paul. <laughs> That's, again, one of those questions where now I, I think I have to speculate about what it is you're implying. Um, but all I can say is that, uh, yes, Russia today is funded by the Kremlin, is funded by Putin, basically. So it is Russian state-owned media. Um, it claims independence from the Russian government, but, you know, take that for what it is. So RT America, I'm sure, has a little bit more independence in terms of just being physically distant and 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 uh, covering specifically America. But obviously, it's still under the rubric and it's still ultimately Russian state-owned television. So it's right to be uh, skeptical of it. But at the same time, none of that negates the facts that I presented in that segment with Abby Martin, which are all absolutely true, verifiable facts that come from my conversations with Sibel Edmonds and the facts that we laid out there. So, and, and uh, plus, I mean, even if this is some nefarious Russian plot of some sort, at any rate, tens of thousands of people who had never heard of Operation Gladio have now heard about it, and Gladio B specifically. So that's to the good. And that's my philosophy about going on media outlets. I would go on CNN or BBC or whatever if they had me on simply so that I could talk to their audience and hopefully try to get some truth to them. I actually probably wouldn't do it with CNN or BBC unless it was live because they probably edit me to oblivion. But you get the point. Media outlets are media outlets because we can talk to people. We can hopefully reach out and, and capture a few minds in that audience and, and bring them towards the truth. That's ultimately my my uh, idea with uh, media. So if Press TV invites me on, I'll go on them. If RT invites me on, I'll go on them. And if uh, if other outlets invite me on, I'll go on there to spread the message, to spread the truth. As long as they don't censor me or uh, edit me to, to pieces, then I'm happy to do it. And uh, glad you'll be interview on RT for what it's worth was live and unedited and uncensored. So I got all the information out that I could possibly get out in a very short time. So again, you're right. We should be skeptical of RT, where they're coming from, what their position is, the types of topics they won't talk about. And we covered that, for example, with the uh, Polish plane crash and uh, other things that they won't talk about. Um, but but in terms of covering the corruption in America, hey, they're very good at that. And obviously it's for political reasons, but still, I mean, the information that they present on those subjects generally tends to be true, which is the important part. 
So again, it's not as simple as that. Um, but yes, we should always keep in mind that that type of background information and compare it to the information that is being presented. Because as always, it's about the information. It's not about ad hominems about who owns this or who 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 subscribes to what. It's about the information that's presented, and that's uh, that's my media philosophy there. Um, also on the subject broadly of Gladio, we have a question in from Mark who writes, It is now common knowledge around the world that the U.S. war on terror was started and continues to be fueled by forces within the U.S. government. Everyone knows it, but why does the foreign community not put more pressure on the U.S. to acknowledge they have a problem within? End quote. A good question. And this is a question that speaks to the fact that, for example... Almost anywhere else you go in the world, the idea that 9-11 was an inside job is not only not controversial, it's not even, uh, I mean, it's not even something that people would bat an eyelid, bat an eyelid at. I mean, most of the rest of the world does understand that the 9-11 official story is ridiculous. Um, it is very controversial still in America, obviously, because it's politically sensitive there. Um, but, uh, but yes, the foreign community, I think, by and large, does understand that the U.S. is the biggest purveyor of terror, and uh, the drone strikes and other things uh, just continue to, to exacerbate that problem. And I guess there are a couple of different approaches to why the foreign community doesn't put more pressure on the U U.S. to stop that. And, I mean, one of them is how would they do so? Um, there have been numerous resolutions, for example, calling on uh, uh, very trying to clamp down in various ways on, on what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, every single one of which is basically uh, downvoted by the U.S. and Israel in the U.N. General Assembly, and as a result is never reported on ever. So it doesn't matter if it's 170 nations to two or whatever whatever the vote turns out to be, it will uh, it just doesn't exist because the U.S. doesn't want it to exist in the in the U.S. media, obviously. So I mean, one question is how would they bring the pressure. Um, secondly, there are all sorts of people who benefit from the U.S. military umbrella, the economic umbrella, so they don't have any interest whatsoever in rocking that boat. Why would Canada or Japan or, or any of these trading partners or close uh, allies of the U.S. want to uh, to bring any of this up? I mean, we're starting to see a little bit of kickback from Germany and France and, and others about the NSA spying scandal. Why are you spying on us? But you'll notice how it's more framed about the leaders. Oh, you're spying on Merkel? Well, then that's over the line. You can spy on German citizens, but don't spy on Merkel. So again, it's a question of how they frame that criticism. On, on the other side of it, obviously there are political rivals to the U.S. Uh, hegemony, imperialist, uh, New World Order uh, plan, and that is broadly speaking represented by the uh, the resistance bloc, China, Russia, Iran, those types of nations which are being encircled right now by NATO. I think there's a meta level in which this is all part of a New World Order syndicate, but but disregarding that, I mean, there is still real conflicts that are happening against uh, real militaries at the moment, and I think the it, it's an exceptionally interesting question to ask. Why isn't, for example, Russia, who really does know a lot more about what about 9/11 and and other uh, Al Qaeda terrorists being funded by the U.S. and sponsored by them, why aren't they using more of that against the U.S. Partially, it's because Russia obviously benefits from the war on terror narrative. They get to to use it uh, in places like uh, Chechnya and the like to do what they will in in those areas. 
And uh, of course, the Chechen terrorists and others are also being fund- funded and funneled in by NATO. So it is it is a bizarre system. But I think, again, power structures benefit from having these overarching narratives like the war on terror. And the power structure in Russia is fundamentally no different than the power structure in the U.S. They both want to control and track and surveil and, and uh, completely do what they will to their citizens. And if they can both use the war on terror narrative to do so, maybe they will. And uh, maybe... There is the dirt that the U.S. has on Putin that Putin doesn't want to reveal, so Putin won't reveal the dirt on the U.S., and maybe it works both ways. Um, there's a tendency in the alternative media to to say, oh, well, Putin is against the NATO, so he must be great, and everything he does is great, and all the opposition to him is is directly 100% NATO. Uh, there is some truth to to the NATO funding and of the opposition and the like, but that doesn't mean that Putin is a great man or that we should be lauding what he's doing. Um, and just some recent examples that came up. They're now trying to put in immigration controls where they uh, take facial recognition pictures of every Russian uh, in, in airports and the like. Basically, the exact same war on terror crap that's being pushed on Americans and people in the West is is what Putin wants to do. Putin wants a, a, a European Union that, that includes Russia, basically a, a big, a bigger um, step towards globalism. It's the same stuff from different uh, people, basically. So so don't put Putin on a pedestal, and I'll have more to say about that later. But uh, but yes, getting back to the question, I think there might be a, a number of reasons why people like Putin don't bring up what they obviously do know. This is something, by the way, that we talked about in the Gladio B series with Sibel Edmonds and, and also in our coverage of the Boston Marathon bombing. So I hope people will go back and check that discussion out. We don't have any definitive answers about it, because obviously we don't know, but, but it is interesting to think about. Um, let's move on to a question from Sarah, who writes simply, how do you view the future? Thank you for the question, Sarah. It is. It sounds like the perfect setup to some punchline. Uh, I don't know. I open my eyes and wait. Um, but no, uh, how do I view the future? Good question. I did actually try to answer that in a slightly interesting way, I hope, in the podcast last year where I did an episode, uh, Message from the Future. A message to the future, sorry. And uh, I think it's one of the little hidden gem podcasts that's a little bit different than than the regular run-of-the-mill podcasts I do here, so I hope people will go and check that out. Um, it came kind of in a flurry of videos last year, so it might have gotten lost in the mix, but I'll put the link in so people can check it out. It's uh, Again, it's a little bit different, and it's, uh, I hope at the end is actually positive. It sounds like a negative view of the future, but ultimately the future is what we make of it. And I really do believe that solutions can be implemented and we can turn this around. If I didn't believe that, why would I be here talking to you right now? So um, so ultimately my my view is optimistic, but hopefully rationally optimistic. And uh, and ultimately at the, at the end of the day, again, it depends on us and what we choose to do and what we choose to implement and whether we choose to uh, implement those solutions that we talk about here on the podcast week in and week out or not. Um, let's move on to a video question. We had one in from uh, Matt, YouTube user Matt Libman. So let's go to that uh, YouTube question. Hi, James. Question for you. Um, in the wake of the Los Angeles shooting and anticipating as this great awakening goes on and some weird people might decide to kill themselves, they may decide to do some more of these protest-type mass public shootings. What can we do as private free market individuals living in, you know, separate from the system and, and not wanting to turn to our government to control this, but what can we do 
is people who don't believe in government gun control, but do believe in safety and do not want these things to occur, and do believe that we still have within our constitution, whether it's an Article 5 or just an election or uh, Article 5 constitutional convention or just free speech and free press in America, uh, the ability to have a peaceful revolution without having to go crazy. So what can we do to reduce gun violence? It, it's inevitable that the conversation is going to turn to gun control background checks. Uh, but what we don't want to do is have everybody who comes back from war with a little bit of a shell shock to not be able to carry a gun because those are the guys that we do want carrying guns, right? So we don't want a DSM that diagnoses PTSD, doesn't allow people who have that diagnosis to have a gun, and then anyone who wants to get disability coming back from world, uh, from Afghanistan has to give up their sovereignty. That's the question. Thanks. All right. Thank you for the question. Um, it's a good question. And basically, I mean, the question is, how would a free society deal with the problem of gun violence or something of that sort? How, if if we were in a free society and and big mass shootings or whatever occurred, how do we deal with that if, uh, if we don't want to have some sort of overarching government control and gun control and all of this? Uh, it's a good question, but I think it looks different in every different cultural context and society. I mean, for example, I'm living here in Japan where gun violence is, I mean, like equivalent to finding a, a leprechaun riding a unicorn. I mean, it just doesn't exist here except occasionally when some Japanese gangster or mafia figure goes and attacks some other Japanese mafia figure. I mean, it happens maybe a couple times a year. It's just not something that happens here generally. Um, and people might say, oh, that's a case for gun control because Japan has such strict limits on guns. I think it's more to do with the fact that J the Japanese public has always been disarmed and it is just a culture that just accepts that. So basically there's no cultural history whatsoever of the average person being armed. It's always been the samurais or the shoguns or whoever who monopolizes violence in Japanese society. And it's the same thing today. Uh, I mean, the mafia of today is just the old, uh, the old ruling families of old. Uh, that didn't become corporations, uh, became uh, gangster mafia syndicates. So, I mean, it's it's the same cultural paradigm. Um, in the American context, obviously, that's completely different because America has had a, a from its founding, in fact, a, intimately intertwined with its very existence is the idea of gun ownership and gun usage, which makes it a completely different uh, basket of cakes, I want to say. <laughs> that, that metaphor makes no sense whatsoever. So um, so uh, how does a free society deal with it? How does a free society deal with people buying knives? Um, they can be used to stab people. So do we want some sort of agency to give psychiatric tests of people before they can buy a knife and that type of thing? I mean, this is, again, ultimately something that has to devolve into personal responsibility and social responsibility. I mean, we are all living in a social context with those of us around us. And if we can't negotiate that context, then we have failed as a species, basically. And uh, and so this takes on different different forms for different places and people and contexts. But, uh, but I don't think that having some sort of government checks of, of who can or can't purchase this or that lump of metal that happens to be fabricated in a way that makes it into a weapon um, should be should be done. Uh, obviously, that's not the solution. Um, and in the American context, I think that the, uh, the statistics show again and again that gun ownership actually decreases gun violence. Uh, as gun ownership goes up, gun violence goes down. And in the areas where there is no gun ownership uh, or very, very little, like in Chicago and New York and places like that, the violence goes up. Hey, I wonder why that is. Um, so again, I think that uh, that gun control is is just a failed paradigm altogether, especially in the American context. Um, but again, a lot more to say about that. So 
hopefully we can have flesh that out in some more detail at another time. Um, let's move on to uh, Twitter. Uh, back to Twitter. Felipe Abed at Felipe Abed writes, why are comments not allowed at one of your best videos? And of course, that's referencing 9-11 and conspiracy theory. Now almost 2.1 million views. Obviously my most viewed video. Uh, yes, this is a good question. Up until, uh, I think, September, early September of this year, comments were completely 100% wide open on that video. And I would, from time to time, get emails from people telling me that I should block this or that user, or I should just block the comments altogether. And I would generally ignore them because, hey, it's open for anyone to comment. Anyone can have in there. And it's just, that's what chaos and and freedom and, uh, and the free speech look like. But uh, it got to the point in early September where I was getting several emails a day from different people saying, please shut down the comment section. So I eventually went and checked it out and I went through the first three or four pages of comments and literally every single one was uh, was marked as spam. And uh, there was there were bots in there. There were people having spam wars. It was just it was insane. It was literally unreadable. I literally did not find a single comment in the first few pages of comments. It was getting to the point where it was completely out of control. So I did shut down the comments, and uh, especially during the September 11th anniversary cycle, I didn't want that to be detracting from the the message of the video. Um, now YouTube, and just in the last couple of days, as I'm sure YouTube users have noticed, has rejiggered their uh, comments, and supposedly it's going to be easier or better or laid out in a way that makes this type of problem less apparent. I don't know. I mean, it's still too early to say. Uh, from what I've seen of the new comments, I can't imagine this is the final version of what they're planning because uh, it just looks like a total disaster to me. But let's let's see how that plays out. And I, I'm sure I will open 9-11 uh, conspiracy theory video to comments again at some point, but it, we have to do something about the spam that's going on in there. Um, let's move to Leonid, who writes, uh, regarding experience social security blunder, would the existence of an anarchy society prevent this blunder or make it less relevant? Please discuss it on your show if you can. Thanks. Uh, for those who don't know, this is referring to a story that we can get, for example, from Slashdot. Experian sold social security numbers to ID theft service. Experian, one of three national U.S. credit bureaus, reportedly sold SSNs through its subsidiary Court Ventures to the operators of Superget.info, who then offered all of the information online for a price. End quote. You can go on and read more about that story, that incredible story, um, just ridiculous. Uh, the first thing that we'd have to say, coming from an anarchist perspective, is that well, in a stateless society, there would be no social security number. Therefore, there would be no social security number database with all of this vital, important personal info that could then be stolen or acquired or pilfered or however and then sold to others. So that's the first level of, of analysis here. But that's not to say, obviously, that in a free society that there would be no databases of information. I mean, people would still be contracting with corporations that would ask for various pieces of information, and, and there would still be databases where that information resides, and it can be still stolen or sold out or whatever. I mean, it would still happen in a free society, just not to the extent that it happens in a state state society, a status society. Um, but again, let's look at the ways that a free society deals with this rather than a, a status society. In a status society, if the social security number ends up getting, uh, and your social security uh, uh, personal data ends up getting pilfered or, or, or stolen or sold to other corporations and ends up uh, spread to the four winds, what recourse do you as a citizen have to the government 
Can you sue them? Can you can you initiate something that will actually uh, disband the social security uh, idea or, or completely you don't trust them with your data anymore, so, so therefore they have to delete it all? No, of course not. It is a system that is in place because of the social contract. You have to abide by whatever the will of the people is and, and uh, all of the other status delusions that govern our society. So it's there's no recourse whatsoever. If anything, this system will gain even more power and even more control in the name of securing your data. Well, we need more money. We need more funding. We need more power. We need more people working on it so that we can secure this data in a better way. And obviously, ultimately, this is this creates the monster that we all know of as government today. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Every time that something goes wrong, they get more power. That is why the status paradigm is fundamentally at its base wrong. And in a free society, yes, absolutely, people will steal data and it'll get sold and whatever. But if a company does that, well, if you ever contract with that company again, it's your stupid fault for doing so. Um, And ultimately, again, it devolves down to personal responsibility. And if people want to be stupid and sign up with companies that consistently sell out their data or can't protect it, then that's their problem. But personally, I want to have the choice of not doing that. So again, it's, it comes down to personal responsibility and personal choice, two things that do not exist in the status paradigm. Um, let's move on to uh, a Griffin who writes, uh, again, regarding anarchy. One of my concerns is the environmental factor. Being a listener to your podcast, I'm definitely not referring to man-made global warming. Uh, but deforestation, strip mining, radiation, and pollution of any kind are significant issues in our current paradigm, and I'm confident a voluntary society would at the very least help with this issue, but I haven't been able to get a clear picture of how exactly it would go about it. What are some of the ways environmental damage could be minimized in a world without government? Yes, very good question, because this is something that a lot of people might have problems with, thinking about a free society. Oh, we can't have a free society because we need the EPA to come in and protect us from the, you know, whatever, pollution or what have you. Um, A couple of things to say here. One is to say that the fundamental paradigm that they've inculcated us with over the last few decades, and very consciously so, is that pollution comes from the average man and woman. It comes from you throwing out a soda can on the side of the road and making uh, Native Americans cry. Um, That's the image that has been uh, put into us, that litter and things like this is the real environmental problem. And of course, that is a drop in the ocean of the the pollution and radiation and, and things of that nature that are caused directly by government and its evils around the world. Whether you look at the military industrial complex and all of the incredible amounts of radiation and pollution and everything that that's responsible for from the depleted uranium that's now causing unprecedented amounts of birth defects in Fallujah and other places or whether you look at uh, the US Army literally dumping toxic nerve agents into rivers um, that's been documented numerous times we've talked about it on the podcast before whether you look at all the various ways that government itself is the is to blame for this environment and then they try to blame it all on you oh you're the reason this this planet is being um, screwed so getting rid of government would get rid of a lot of that problem uh, right off the bat. Um, But again, the question is, well, what about these private corporations? Obviously, you can't trust private corporations. The answer ultimately, again, is private ownership. Um, People think that if we socialize the land, then then the perfect angels who run that socialized land will, of course, only use it for for good. Oh, look at the way that they protect and and conserve nature, Um, which, again, is complete and total uh, BS. Um, When you look at Agenda 21 and what that's all about, trying to wall off these natural areas for the use and, uh, and abuse of the 
the 0.001% elite, whereas the uh, the average citizen is uh, basically going to be further and further walled off from that. That's precisely because people have allowed this land to be socialized, which is just a polite way of saying taken over by that elite class that really puppeteers these governments. So the, uh, the, the, the answer can't possibly be to have more socialized land. It has to come from people actually owning it in the exact same way that you treat a rental car. You don't go and you don't change the oil, as Stefan and you likes to say in a rental car because you don't care you don't own it you're just it's just something you're using for the time being and you don't care as long as it passes the uh, the little inspection after after you send it back you don't care what state it's in really um in the exact same way with socialized land who cares it's not your problem it's it's society as a whole um if you genuinely care about something and if you genuinely want it then you assemble yourself and a group whatever it is a group of concerned citizens to to buy that area of land and to take care of it in the way that you see fit um, that's ultimately the answer to this. Um, again, the idea that people can trust these governments that do things like 9-11 and all of the other crap and, and de- depleted uranium and the uh, the uranium um, uh, nuclear reactor industry itself, which is, of course is completely a product of government um, and government subsidy, and all of this, they trust these same governments to then socialize the land and take care of it, is just beyond me how people can b- fall for that. Speaking of how it's beyond me that people can fall for that, we have a, a very uh, a relevant question, uh, another YouTube question, this one from YouTube user Tim Maniac. Hi, James. Thanks for your fantastic work. It seems like lately that the new darling of the alternative media is Russell Brand. I was wondering what you thought about him because at first I kind of liked him and thought it was kind of refreshing. But in a recent interview with Jeremy Paxman, he's um, after a question of what he thought what a revolution should look like. He said he would like to have massive redistribution of wealth and socialist egalitarianism. I thought that was quite a statement coming from someone who's a millionaire and has a big house and stuff. Also, he joined the New Statesman uh, magazine, which I think is a Fabian socialist magazine, so that's another huge red flag. Um, Also, at the last, um, at his recent uh, magazine for the uh, uh, New Statesman, um, the cover really reminds me of The Last Supper. And he also looks a bit like Jesus, so hmm, it's kind of eerie. What are your thoughts on him? Um, wolf in sheep's clothing, useful idiot, or the new messiah? Thank you for the question. I believe this question was uh, created, this video was created before I did the New World Next Week with, uh, with James Evan Pilato, where we discussed the Russell Brand interview. So for people who haven't seen it, uh, I'll put the link into that. It's under the title Russell Brandwagon. And uh, and I've certainly heard back from a lot of Russell Brand fans out there in the audience, or defenders at any rate, who are saying, what, what's your problem? Just because he's a celebrity, you're going to dismiss his ideas? No, I'm going to dismiss his ideas because they're stupid. Um, uh, I completely agree with him about the futility of voting and uh, the fact that voting in this society is just uh, basically signing on to uh, to become a slave to the system. I agree with that completely. And I agree there needs to be 
a revolution of some sort, but I don't agree whatsoever with his uh, socialist uh, mass redistribution of wealth and the demonization of the idea of profit um, and all of the other socialist garbage that he's talking about that uh, that I have never espoused on this podcast and never will. And and I, I mean, I invite people who are surprised at this to go back in my archives and look at what I talk about. I don't talk about mass redistributions of wealth at the point of a gun by admin bods, as uh, Russell Brand calls them, that will somehow be again administered by the the angels who descend from heaven to run run this system. Again, we know that that's a total load of uh, BS. But uh, apparently, Brand's acolytes seem to think that. Uh, well, I, I'm sure you, you offer those uh, those uh, ideas at the end. I, I would go with useful idiot. I don't think he's necessarily you know being this this evil mastermind who's furthering the aims of the new world order to, uh, willingly. I think he's just doing so as uh, as a useful idiot. Um, and and uh, again, I. I, you point out the Masonic handshake with the Queen and everything, and and his defenders still go, uh, "Well, it's fine." I mean, why why would he make a ruckus or whatever? So I, I, apparently, I guess if I go and meet the Queen and I shake her hand with a little Masonic handshake and everything and bow to her, no one would have a problem with that, right? No, of course it's a double standard because he's a big, energetic, charismatic celebrity, and he's on BBC, and so he can get away with uh, with whatever, and he's he's mouths some great lines and and the like. Don't get me wrong, but uh, but ultimately he's uh, barking up the wrong tree, and I'm not uh, here to lead a socialist revolution. So anyway, let's uh, also I'll be writing a little bit more about that in this week's uh, international forecaster slash my uh, subscriber newsletter for people who are interested. Um, let's move on to Teresa, who writes one important question that I have not seen asked or answered yet is about the insurance on Building Seven. Uh, what did the insurance company rule as far as the claim? Who benefited? And what insurance company was involved? Did that company's premiums to others rise? Very good question, Teresa. This is an important question, but it is exceptionally intricate. There's a lot of different details to this, and it depends what part of the story. This is something that's been going on literally for 12 years now, and in fact, still up to this year, is was still going on in the court system, and, uh, and probably will continue to do so um, even further on. The latest on this basically is that uh, as of July 18th, 2013, a uh, New York federal judge ruled um, that that Larry Silverstein's multi-billion-dollar lawsuit—he was trying to get 3.5 more billion dollars uh, uh, claims and damages from 9/11—that that couldn't go ahead. That that has been blocked by federal judge Alvin Hellerstein. So that was actually blocked. He didn't get that extra 3.5 billion. He already got 4.3 billion, I want to say. But again. <sighs> Again, these numbers have changed and, go- and there's been different court cases over the years, so you, you really have to follow it closely. But on the broader question of insurance, there is no doubt that the, uh, the buildings were bought and sold and leased and uh, securitized in a headlong rush in August. Um, they were rushing to get all of the I's dotted and T's crossed um, in the lead up to 9-11. And in fact, uh, the bonds that they were issuing as part of the securitization of the the newly leased buildings, um, the first bonds uh, were, were released on September 10th. So literally people were buying into the towers on September 10th and they fell on September 11th. And the weird thing is, the bonds were built more sturdy, sturdy in a sturdier fashion than the towers themselves, because the bonds actually paid off. Um, they actually managed to pay them all off with the money they got from the insurance. So whoever bought into it still managed to make their money out of it. Funny how that works. But the interesting thing is, when you really start to look at it, this either either Silverstein was a dummy. 
or he didn't have time, or he was a dupe. Um, not actually a witting person in, in this uh, chain of events, because the way that they secured and, and insured these buildings, some of the insurance had not been contracted yet as of September 11th, meaning that, for example, the $3.5 billion that he was just seeking as extra damages, he can't get. So either he was stupid or incompetent or unable to pull it off in time, or he actually was not a witting participant, which is an interesting... I mean, clearly there were witting participants behind the insurance and the leasing of the building. Maybe it wasn't Silverstein himself. Maybe it was the people who were involved in the securitization and the bonds. I mean... It's an interesting theory, and for more on that, I will recommend a very interesting, very well-researched post called The Bonds of August, Refinancing the Twin Towers on the Eve of Destruction from NewCombat.net. A very interesting article. I really hope people will check into that. Just another piece to add to the to the uh, the 9-11 money trail, which again is just fascinating. So maybe we'll do a specific episode on the insurance at some point, because it is too fascinating to just gloss over like this. Um, but let's move on <laughs> as we're running out of time. Let's go to Scott who writes, since gold is beyond my price point, I do own some. I've been loading up on silver with the assumption that silver will move in tandem with gold. Am I wrong to assume that? Uh, Scott, you are not wrong to assume that. In fact, if anything, you've probably erred on the side of, um, of to, to your own benefit. Um, yes, gold and silver, generally speaking, will move up and down in tandem, not in lockstep and not necessarily to the same degree, but generally speaking, I mean, just as their nature as precious metals, as commodities, they will generally move in, in similar fashion. Um, but silver, I mean, there are people who advocate silver as a better investment than gold, and there are people who talk about silver having a bigger potential upside when the uh, the actual manipulation is removed from these, these metal prices and they return to something like reality. There's more potential upside in silver than in gold, because silver is at uh, lower than historically average uh, gold to silver price ratio. And I, I see that argument. I think that there, there's some benefit to it, but I, I'm not sure that it's quite as much upside as people say. But at any rate, yes, there is an upside to silver. It's not a bad investment. And in some ways, if there is that kind of catastrophic collapse and people um, basically have no currency to trade with whatsoever and they turn to precious metals, silver is a lot more useful than gold because it's a lot easier to buy a loaf of bread with a piece of silver than with a shaving of gold or whatever it might be. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So so trading could be done in silver and done quite easily, actually. So um, there's definite upside and potential to, to silver and definite reasons to hold silver. Um, I think having a bit of both certainly doesn't hurt um, in your portfolio. And if you can't afford gold, then buy silver. That's that's That would be my rule of thumb. Um, let's turn also to another financial question from Bruce. Bruce writes, uh, Bitcoin seems to have had both a resurgence in the news and in its price slash value. Could you give us your view on Bitcoin and could you recommend a reputable dealer? Uh, thank you for that question, Bruce. First question, uh, second, second question first. Uh, can I recommend a reputable dealer? No, because I don't do that and I don't promote uh, people for financial gain or whatever. So... I'm sure you can find your own reputable dealers online. Um, in terms of Bitcoin overall, uh, I, I have a Bitcoin donate p uh, button on my page. It has been used about five or six times in the history of the website, but still it's there and I'm, I'm not 100% against Bitcoin. I do have my reservations about it and I certainly don't think it's the savior that some people have uh, have uh, thought or put, posited it as. 
But uh, there's pros and cons. And if you want more about what I said about that, I actually wrote an international forecaster editorial about that back in May called Bitcoin, the hope, the hype, and the space in between. That's up on the internationalforecaster.com, so you can go read it. Um, and that's uh, I, there's some of the pros and cons in there. Another con that incidentally recently came up that I tweeted out recently was a Zero Hedge story that noted that the, the first ever Bitcoin ATM is now in Vancouver. And uh, oh yeah, how do they link you to your account? By a palm scan. So now you are palm scanning to get into your completely anonymous uh, Bitcoin account, right? Um, so, so even that's not a problem with Bitcoin itself. It's a problem with the dumb people who actually palm scan to get into their Bitcoin account. But it just goes to show that uh, that this has some bad potential to go very wrong if people don't use their head about how to use Bitcoin. And very few people understand, I think, how to use Bitcoin in a way to even attempt to preserve an anonymity and i think anonymity on the internet is a pipe dream anyway so so there you go there's there's definitely problems with it but there are some good things about bitcoin so i'm not 100 against it but apparently if you're not 100 for or 100 against it something people will think that you're wishy-washy or something no that's called being actually reasonable and having a position that's thought out and and not putting all eggs in one basket which is generally a formula for disaster uh let's move to francisk francisk I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Who writes, My question has to do with the so-called quantitative easing by the Fed and its effect on the economy. I know the Fed is buying about $45 billion per month of treasury bonds and $40 billion per month of mortgage-backed securities, all with money they create out of nothing. You also say that this money is currently not causing inflation because it ends up parked in the accounts that banks have at the Fed. What I don't understand is this. How can all this newly created money be propping up the stock market if it never gets into the marketplace to begin with? Excellent question, Francisc. And this is really important that, that people think about this on a, on a deeper level because there's a couple of things going on here. Well, there's a million things going on here, but let's see if we can boil it down. Um, firstly, I, uh, it's not that there was no inflation. There is inflation. And in fact, if you look at shadowstats.com, inflation uh, CPI calculated by the method they used to use a couple of decades ago would be somewhere around 9%. The official number is whatever it is, 1.2% or whatever they want you to believe. Um, but actual inflation is, is well up there. Um, so, so inflation is happening, but it's not the kind of hyperinflation that we would expect uh, to the, the at the fact that they're creating a trillion dollars in money every single year through this quantitative easing. And that's again, that's because this money isn't going directly into the pockets of people who are then spending it out in the economy. It's going into treasury bonds and it's going into mortgage-backed securities. So we have to think about how that affects the economy. When they, the Fed buys treasury bonds, again, it doesn't buy them directly from the treasury. It buys them on the open markets through open market operations. So it isn't directly financing the government, but it basically means the government can continue to print more debt and it keeps the interest rates artificially low. Um, that means that the, the bonds uh, are stable, but they're not a very good investment. They don't really outstrip inflation um, even the officially doctored inflation by very much. So people naturally, if they're looking for a place to invest, unless they're scared about, uh, you know, the potential for some kind of collapse or something, uh, they will tend to say, well, I don't want to buy bonds. Uh, well, where else is there to go? Well, you pretty much have to go in the stock market uh, these days. Equities is, the, is where funds are funneled into by this system. Also, the money that the... Fed supports by buying treasury bonds is debt that the government issues and the government tends to spend that into the economy. So it does have an inflationary effect in that way. And the $45 billion a month in uh, $40 billion a month in mortgage backed securities is, believe it or not, pump, pump, uh, pumping up another housing bubble. 
can you believe this? Five or six or seven years after the popping of the last ridiculous housing bubble that almost caused economic Armageddon, and the effects of which we're still feeling today, is actually causing another housing bubble um, because they're once again removing the uh, the the moral hazard from the the lenders by buying their their toxic mortgage-backed security garbage at the expense of the American taxpayer at the end, um, who ultimately foots the bill for all of this or who's on the hook for this bill. So ridiculous state of affairs. And once again, uh, just I'll, I'll direct you to some some of the work that Zero Hedge has been doing on this this new housing bubble, which again is reaching the exact same spots that it was back in 2006. When the last one popped, so uh, it's just ridiculous. And so, so these are the 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 money is being funneled into certain sectors of the economy, like equities, like the housing market, and uh, and it creates the illusion that everything's going up because of economic activity or something. But if you look at the underlying economic production, it's not in line with that. All right, I think that's it. I think uh, that's all the questions that we have on the plate for today. Um, just an incredible amount of data again today. So once again, I'll, I'll exhort you to go to the show notes for today's episode where we'll have dozens and dozens of links to all the things that we talked about. And uh, once again, just a reminder, I will be uh, heading out of the country uh, towards the end of the month. So uh, things will again be dropping off of the website. The only thing that I have planned uh, during the time that I'm actually physically at the conference is that JFK video that I hope will launch on the actual 50th anniversary, Friday, November 22nd. So please uh, stay stay tuned for that. Keep an eye out for that and uh, hopefully spread that when it comes out. In the meantime, there will be some videos and podcasts, etc. next week. So everything will continue as normal for next week. And on that note, I'm out of here. Thank you all for listening. Stay, uh, stay, stay safe and take care. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you again soon.